Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rainbow Road. I am your host, Travis Ryans, and joining me again is our co-host, Mike Deneen. Mike, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Travis. I am doing fantastic. How are you doing? Oh, just fantastic. Uh, I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm really good. I'm uh, finally making my way back to work, which is a, a weird environment right now. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's helped me take stock of how much I've really enjoyed quarantine and how much I've enjoyed doing this show, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, this has been such a pleasure to get to do. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I feel like, you know, we've covered so much so far. You know, we started with the Overwatch episode, moved, moved into Pokemon. We've done Dream Daddy and Life is Strange and all these sort of video games. And I feel like it's helped me really fill a lot of uh, what could have just been very sad free time staring out a window and uh, and and really and connect with our friends and 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 our listeners and stuff so I'm, I'm pretty happy with with uh, what we've done so far and uh, and very grateful as well yeah, as am I. It's really been a wonderful project to to focus on and to get to connect with people. I, I've got to meet so many new people because of this, which is really cool. Um, and we are up to like thousands of listens online, which is just mm-hmm. kind of mind boggling that people will sit and listen to us talk, which is great. They're all me. It's all for <laughs> Ashley. Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of which, we do have two guests with us today. Joining us again is Ashley Cooper. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here as always. Hey, Ashley, and thank you so much for all the listeners. (laughs) You probably bring in about half our audience, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, We have two streamers with us today. Ashley is also a writer for games and television, as well as a stand-up comedian. We also have Ike Pastel. Ike, how you doing, buddy? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Ike is a streamer and musician. We're so glad to have both of you on. So today we are doing something a little different. Normally, we focus Mm -hmm. on the queer aspects of video games. But today, we're actually going to focus on something a little different. We are going to look at a documentary about video games. Uh, We are going to be talking about High Score. Hell yes. Woo! High Score is a documentary series released by Netflix in 2020. In fact, it was just released a few weeks ago. High Score dives into the birth of the video game industry from the first arcade games to around the development of 3D games in the mid-1990s. The series was created by France Costrell, who had previously created another docuseries called 8-Bit Legacy, The Curious History of Video Games. While that first series was Emmy-nominated, Costrell was not satisfied with how much it focused on the games instead of the creators behind them. With High Score, she sought to tell the whole story and made a concerted effort to shed light on the more marginalized creators who helped shape the industry. It's been streamlined down to six episodes that are each less than an hour. If you haven't seen it, I I would definitely recommend it. I really enjoyed watching it. Um, You don't need to have watched it because we're going to be just sort of bouncing around between the topics here and filling you guys in, but you'll definitely appreciate what we're talking about so much more if you've seen it. First of all, I just want to say the theme song of the documentary is so good. Yeah, the intro was great. <laughs> I just love that song so much. And, and it's done by Power Glove, uh, who I think they have stuff on Spotify uh, as well. Mike, this was actually your idea for the episode. So where did you get the idea to, to focus on this? Yeah, I just thought it would be a good opportunity to, for us to do something uh, to, a lighter in terms of time commitment, uh, just because. Uh, and, and also, I think you, you mentioned in, in your opening monologue, it really talks about the creators behind these things that are now just iconic in video game culture that are just staples, they're, you know, social artifacts at this point. So I thought it would be a fun opportunity to do that and talk about it with our friends. Yeah. yeah. Ashley, how did you feel about watching it? Just sort of like overall general thoughts. It was one of those shows where I was like, oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, I'll give that a shot. And then before I realized it, I had watched 
three of them and it was <laughs> 2 a.m. I think structurally one thing they do that's really great is like they get to the end of the story that they're telling for that episode and they're like and then this happened it's the hook like oh that is definitely within my realm of interest and then i just watch the next one and i have to stop myself so i, I think i only i think i watched the entire thing in in three settings yeah we, matt and i pretty much did the same thing we we really got hooked on it um ike what did you think sort of like general thoughts on it i really really loved it i i love how they told the story it, it was multiple people that they featured but they connected everything and how things were working together i remember getting uh my first Game Boy and playing Metroid and I was like oh my gosh the music and all this it was just I mean it's really um, nostalgic nostalgic yeah it's good to see what ha- was happening in the background mm-hmm. yeah you know and it's cool that how they had the A story and the B story sometimes and you know I've been an entrepreneur I've, I've done some fun like business stuff in the past and so much of it is actually just serendipity in the market like mm-hmm. I think what was it there was something there were two things being developed at the same time and then they just kind of like clicked what what was that uh, the arcades where they were updating the arcades and they were trying to add different levels and they had like infringement stuff that turned into success the problem is i can think of like six different things that that's referring I, to yeah. because of how well they set stuff up in this show like it was it, it, i really loved those staggered narratives as they jump back and forth mm-hmm. you know between what was happening in japan and what was happening in america mm-hmm. you know and the people uh, featured as well like uh, hirokazu tanaka the the sound designer i think that one of my favorite quotes from him was just to it's important to think that I'm always on the job, always creating. Mm-hmm. And I thought that really resonated with me because under capitalism, like in the society in which we live, you know, so much of the time we're alienated from our own ability to to create, mm-hmm. um, which even takes me back to the gratitude that I feel for doing this show. You know, one of the things that we admire, maybe even as just like players, is how well they tapped into that creative spark, you know, that creative potential. And I think that is so powerful to like make sure that we don't, end up alienating ourselves from our own ability and potential, which can happen like so easily. Like I'm, I, you know, the, I think that was Miyamoto who was like, I'm walking through like a Japanese temple. I'm seeing like, this could be the Star Fox level. Mm-hmm. It's just like the, the thoughtfulness that goes into it. It's really cool. Yeah. It's fascinating to see all the different voices and getting to see how they shape the industry. I, I think, you know, they start really strong with Rebecca Heinemann, that winner of the mm-hmm. space invaders tournament. Uh, she actually goes on to become a game developer, which I kind of wish the series had focused on more, but Same. they said they had 20 hours of content that they had cut down, but it was really cool to, to see what she had. I mean, Ashley, what was it like for you to watch Rebecca sort of rock her shit up there? Oh, that was so sick. I was like, <gasps> and it's funny because that's actually why I ended up finally watching the show because I had, I think, three separate friends be like, have you watched High Score yet? <laughs> and I was like, no, why is every... I was like, it's just a video game documentary. Why is everybody up my ass about this? They were just like, you should just watch it. You should just watch at least the first episode. And I'm like, oh my God, fine, I will watch it. I was like, I was always going to watch it anyway. Like, obviously, this is up my alley. But people were like, I just I just need you to watch it. I just I just need you to do it. <laughs> like, yeah. And then I was like, oh, okay, this is why. Uh, (laughs) yeah what i love about the way that they chose the angles from which to attack everything is like this series is basically a gatekeeper's worst nightmare and i love it yeah (laughs) yeah like even talking about um there was the guy who was like cold calling uh i think ea to try and get a job there as because he really wanted to see like you know like black representation in the madden games it was a plc um lgbtq representation and that's for sports, that's 
super big, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. yeah. It's it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, do you play sports games, Ike? Uh, no, because when I was younger, my brothers would play sports games and I was like, I vowed to never play sports <laughs> games. They loved Madden and like all the 2K games and I was just like, I'm not with it. I'm like, I, can we play like Mortal Kombat? I always play Mortal Kombat and be like Sonya and stuff. And they'd be like, why are you always playing this girl? And I'm like, because she's awesome she is awesome and she and she's based off a real actress too which i i didn't exactly i didn't know that i didn't know that well i knew it looked realistic but then i was like i didn't know they were actually like taking people's like <laughs> likenesses video yeah. and i was like this is futuristic stuff they're mm-hmm. doing now you know you guys were ahead of the fucking curve i, I think it's really funny like how much of a touchstone these games have become for for culture even for people who don't play video games like my mother who has never touched a video game in her life has zero interest and out of nowhere she texts me one day and she's like who do you usually play in Street Fighter? I'm like, excuse me? Like, what? Where is that coming from? And she's like, who do you usually play? I'm like, oh, I don't really have a main for it. It's not one of my main games. She's like, hmm. Well, it says here that most gay men usually pick Chun-Li. So, I don't know. You should consider that. <laughs> Where did this come from? Damn, you got called out. <laughs> I feel called out. I so, definitely yeah. played Chun-Li a lot. <laughs> I play Chun-Li a lot. Well, there we go. I just liked her buns. Studies don't lie. I was like, I want buns like that. <laughs> now, are you talking about hair or... Uh, oh, hair, definitely. <laughs> That's like me talking about women in high school. And they were like, hell yeah, she's isn't that girl cool? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, she's got really good bracelets and ankles. <laughs> you know? I like her aesthetic. I'm talking about her hair. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I felt very nostalgic watching a lot of these clips. It, it transported me back to to being a kid because I think I consumed so much media back then. Did you guys have that same sort of wave of nostalgia, or mm-hmm. I, or maybe I'm just old? I don't know. <laughs> no, definitely, I I had that same wave. The whole um, Sonic versus Mario thing. A lot of my friends really, really loved Mario, and my brothers were older than me, and we got a Sega instead of a mm. Nintendo. And so the more, not lewd, but advanced, older person system, Edgy. and then it trickles down to the little brother, It's it just, I was like, well, they knew what they were doing. It was crazy. Yeah. And my cousin had Nintendo because we were more aligned with age, but my brother, he was like, I want to say he was like 12. Mm-hmm. We were playing all the fighting stuff. Then we go to my cousin's place and play like the Mario Duck Hunter and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But when we got back home, we'd have the greater games. And my uh, my parents are Nigerian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we immigrated over here in 1994. Most of the time, they would be working a lot because they were working to the bone because, you know, um, just it's not easy to come from a different country. Mm-hmm. And they'd get us video games because that'd be a good way to keep the kids at home busy because they didn't really know people out and about in America, you know. And it was a really big part of my childhood because that just that's what I like funneled my attention into other than going to school. I feel so similarly about how much the video game culture is connected to, to family for me mm-hmm. because I, I, you know, it's funny. I was in the middle of the second episode and I just like, I, I started crying a little bit. Oh, <laughs> like my mom, she was working like two jobs. And I remember like my sisters being around. My, my I'm the youngest in my family. So I have two older sisters. Me too. And yes, but you, you have two older brothers, right? I have uh, three older brothers and one sister. Three older brothers. Mm-hmm. Okay. A lot of kids. But yeah, And so much of that time was spent like playing 
these games with my with my family and i remember yeah uh, feeling like useful because you know we got to super mario brothers 3 and there was like one level in super mario brothers 3 that my sisters like couldn't do but me as like a, a like almost a toddler i'm so young that they're just like handing off the controller to me and like it it sort of endowed me with the sense of competency while like bonding me with my with my sisters and so like watching like the, all this stuff about nintendo and and like talk, and and even the original japanese console name for the nintendo was was the famicom you know that that was it was the family mm-hmm. computer so mm-hmm. many of us have had these fun bonding experiences that have meant so much to us i i it meant a lot to me um it just it got me it got me going it got the waterworks <laughs> i totally connected that because i remember mm-hmm. miyamoto's idea of Star Fox jumping from 2D to 3D space mm-hmm. and how he didn't want it to be so open-ended because he thought anyone used to 2D video games would not be able to comprehend that level of freedom and would get confused and kind of turned around. Right. Uh, and I remember when he said that, like in the in the documentary, I was like, well, that's weird. But then I remembered when we got this N64 with my father, he was so excited because he liked playing video games when he was younger. And he could not understand 3D Mario. Like, it baffled him. It confused the hell out of him. He spent an entire day trying to climb to the top of Womp's castle and beat the boss. And when he finally did it, he was so happy. He was so proud of himself. He started jumping up and down as Mario, jumping around. And he jumped right off the platform without getting the star. Oh, so no. he ended up killing himself and erased all no. of his progress without having accomplished anything. And he just, like, set Jeez. the controller down is like, I'm never playing this game again. Oh, no. Damn. We, we played other games with them, though. We played, like, Cruise and World <laughs> and stuff like that because that was still, like, more 2D-oriented. Oh, like, yeah. sort of, it was 3D, but it looked like a 2D game the way you were playing it. Um, Mm-hmm. It, it was yeah, like you said, there was bonding moments. Um, Ashley, did you play with your family at all growing up? Or yeah, the first video game system that we had as a family was a Sega Genesis, but we had it super late in its life cycle. Like Nintendo sixty four had already hit the market by the time. Basically, my parents for some reason had this stance that like we could get video games when we could afford video games. Of course. We yeah. being my brother and I. You mean like you would have to pay for them? Exactly. Yeah. If we could buy it ourselves, yeah. we could have it, but they weren't going to go out of their way, which always made video games growing up to a certain point this mystical magic thing that I got to do at friends' houses mm-hmm. because my parents did eventually give in and buy us both Game Boys for Christmas one year. But as far as console games, that was something that you left the house to go do. Mm-hmm. And then my brother and I both got jobs running ad bag. Like you put flyers in a bag and you hang them on people's doors and raised the money that we needed to buy a uh, secondhand Sega Genesis. Um, Cause we were originally saving up for Nintendo 64 and got impatient. Um, <laughs> as kids do. It was old to the world, but we hadn't touched most of these games before. So it was brand new to us. But my favorite memory of playing like Sega Genesis was not even me playing. I was in the living room when my mom beat my brother at Mortal Kombat 2. <laughs> Damn. She didn't know what the hell she was doing. Please tell me she used a fatality or something. She just was like, she was just hitting all the buttons as quickly as she could with no rhyme or reason. And so my brother had no strategy to counter and just got decimated two rounds in a row. I can't counter chaos. It was glorious. I remember we were at Palladium, uh, this arcade out in Mississauga, and there was like this mocap fighter game like i don't know how to describe it like it was all motion sensor you would punch a fist and then it would like your character on screen would punch and i remember i was up against my brother because i guess he really wanted the uh 
the physical sensation of getting to beat me up. We <laughs> were playing and I tripped on my shoelace, but the motion sensor regarded it as some like special combo move. And like, I actually managed to kill him just by tripping on my shoe without having any idea what I was That's doing. That's incredible. He was, mm-hmm. he was furious. He was so upset. I love that so much. <laughs> it, it is really cool to see how much of a family thing this is. Like I really liked the framing of Jerry Lawson's story, the, the black engineer who created the video game cartridge and how, of course they weren't able to interview him, but they made it sort of a family moment of them sharing stories generationally of, like, mm-hmm. this is what your grandfather accomplished. This is, you know, how he changed the industry. It felt like a legacy moment, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and like, it's still affecting the industry today. Like, the Switch is still using cartridges. Definitely. But now they're teeny tiny. <laughs> teeny tiny cartridges. And you don't have to blow on them. Right. Which <laughs> apparently, actually, we were never supposed to do reading articles now. But yeah, the, you're not supposed to put the moisture on it. Yeah. Yeah, apparently it corrodes the uh, sensors or whatever, the, the touch points. Whoops. Oops. Whoops. My mom was super strict, so we couldn't play video games during the weekdays, but we would sneak when she wasn't home to do it. And when I got a Game Boy, it was a little bit easier because I could just like inconspicuously play. Yeah, it's portable. Mm-hmm. Friday, after we did our like house chores, my mom would come back from work. She'd pack us all in the car and we'd go to Blockbuster, but it was four kids. And so we would always get Super Smash Brothers because there were four controllers, so four of us could all equally play. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the person of the week would pick one game that the person would want to get and we'd always make fun of our brother because one weekend he got the game i don't know if you guys ever heard of the game hexen no oh my god oh ashley has it was it was a terrible game and we still make fun of him today about getting hexen that's so funny is it it bad is it just like a really bad game it's it's just it's like duke nukem light light like a diet (laughs) diet duke nukem <laughs> like a real try hard Duke Nukem clone that was like super super like uh this is dark and messed up imagery. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but it had like no character to it. Like it had no personality. It was just like ah, isn't this outrageous? And it's like, I mean, no, not really. We have Doom. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was bad. <laughs> so we always still make fun of him because that it is funny to see the um echoes of what has come before and what might happen again. Like, looking at the video game crash in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, all that being pinned on E.T. It was all E.T.'s fault. <laughs> but it was this idea of, like, a glut of low-cost tie-in games crashing the market. It's kind of weird that it's almost the exact opposite problem now. It feels like what might crash the video game industry is not the low-budget cash-ins, but the high-budget cash-ins. Like, so true. Like what, for example? Well, just in general, like, one of the things that I kind of wish they had gotten more into was the crunch crisis in video game development. And I don't honestly know whether it was as much of a problem back then, Mm -hmm. but it certainly is now. Uh, In the lead up to releasing a game, video game developers will overwork their developers into insane hours uh, that they are not paid overtime for. People are sleeping at the office, never seeing their families. And as someone who works in film and television, oh my god, like... I I already hate the schedule that we have, and I can't imagine what it's like for these people who don't have a union to protect them. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ashley, you work in the industry. Like, what is your what is your thoughts on all this? I guess the thing that I am hopeful about is that I have heard of changes happening in the industry of people trying Mm -hmm. to eliminate the crunch culture as much as possible because they are seeing that it's burning employees out, that it's costing them talent and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it is still an unbelievably new industry. Like, that's one of the things that this show really hammered home to me. I was like, 
all of the pioneers of this industry are alive. They are. Yeah, that's very like, true. That's mind blowing to me as somebody who went to school for and learned about film history. There is actual film history. Like, People who are long since dead who helped pioneer the industry. Like, Miyamoto still works. He's not even yep. retired. Yeah. Like, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. what? Yeah. A, it's it's yeah. a nascent industry somewhat, like on a relative scale. But uh, yeah, totally. I mean, and some of them were older, like Richard Garriott. He did that Dungeons and Dragons scene where he was like multiple people. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like... I yeah. think that would have been jokes to make though. That that rat tail that he had. Did you guys see that? It's, oh my god! Right? Oh yeah, I saw god. the rat. I was like, I I had to identify it. I was like, is that a rat tail? I <laughs> had the exact same reaction. I was like, is that attached to his fucking head? Like, <laughs> oh, are those extensions or is that real? <laughs> and you know, it's a testament to this documentary series. Again, I feel like they had a lot of the interviewees do like fun, silly things with the camera. Like yeah. that, that, they definitely had to be mm-hmm. like, okay, now you're gonna position yourself like you're shooting a Hadouken yeah. and then we're going to add the effect over top. <laughs> now look up at the sky because we're going to add graphics over top as if you're imagining your future layout for the game or something. You know, <laughs> I feel like in a lesser series that stuff would have come off as super cheese. Yeah. But I found it so charming for some reason. It was so cute. Yeah, it was because it was it. well done and they, they did an amazing job with all the graphics overlays. The music was great. Definitely. Also, even just some great. of the terminology that came up in the game, like... I. One of the things I like that they talk about is the nerd herd <laughs> in video games. And actually, Travis, maybe we should borrow this because I feel like we don't have a, a way of referring to our listeners. Like anyone who's listening right now, like, how do you feel about being part of the nerd herd? Like our nerd herd? I want to be part of the nerd herd. Yeah, there you go. Ike's on board. Well, let's think. Okay, the, the first fandom I ever joined was Rent. So it would have been Rent Heads. So we're Rainbow Road. What about Roadhead? Roadhead? That makes it seem no? like we're, it's like a bunch of bikers or something. I, I think it... When you, were you making a sexual joke or was that just <laughs> that's fine moving on um, <laughs> what, wait what wait 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 I got it I got it I got it brain bros brain bros <laughs> 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 we'll put a pin in it let's we'll maybe we'll circle back <laughs> that was that was a polite no <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a maybe. I, that was. I don't hate it. No, I don't hate it either. I, I kind of like it. Also, another quote that I actually really liked from the documentary was, uh, people t- tend to think that games are a solitary activity, but the game designer is always there. Player makes an action. The designer leads them on to the next thing, encourages them with a reward, and leads them onward. And I thought that was so interesting because I, I consider myself a bit of an ambivert. Like, maybe this is a gamer thing, actually. I, I think there was someone in the in the documentary who was like, you know, I like my time with people but i also like my time alone i was like yeah i relate to that so hard yeah definitely and i think that even just when i feel overstimulated by the world and god knows there is enough to be overstimulated by in 2020 it's nice to sort of come back and and have this like safe place where you can go on an adventure but you're still you're still kind of with someone because once you figure out a game like i'm experiencing this with final fantasy 7 as i continue to work my way through that fucking long ass game <laughs> you kind of get into the game developer's mind based off the pattern of the of how things have been designed so far 
I don't know. Am I making is this is this nonsense? Am I did I drink too much coffee? <laughs> it's definitely something that I became more conscious of the older I got. Mm-hmm. Same. That there was kind of an invisible hand leading me to places. When I was a kid, I didn't understand the concept of visual storytelling enough to pick up on the clues. And so I would just run around everywhere forever and eventually stumble upon the next part of the game. <laughs> yeah, definitely. In say like a side scroll, it's simple, right? Like your character starts on the left side of the screen. And they put a bunch of empty space on the right side of the screen. And you go, oh, he goes from left to right. That's all really easy and and simple to understand. But Mm -hmm. once things started making the jump to 3D and we had bigger worlds and stuff like that, I was just kind of like, I'll go left. I go right. I go wherever the fuck I want. Oh, hey, an enemy. Like, (laughs) yeah, the free roam. And I would like, I would get turned around because like back then, like there wasn't a lot of uh, variety in textures and stuff. And so I would just run around in circles and be like, I guess I'll know I'm in the right direction when I find another bad guy. Like, <laughs> You sound like a side quester. <laughs> I feel like later games are a lot better at outlining what your objectives are. Like, yeah. even the newer Final Fantasy is a lot more like, here's like, if they're a little bit more handholdy as were the old ones. Like, even the NES games are just kind of like, they could be insurmountable You're on your at own. times. Yeah, just like, here you go. Like, may- maybe you'll know how to beat the game. Who knows? I actually came up against that recently enough because, um... I played a couple old Silent Hill games on stream and you can just tell the age of them by the way that they handle progression Mm -hmm. because there's absolutely zero uh, handholding. There's zero uh, stated objective. And there were certain puzzles that like once upon a time, my brain probably would have been trained in the right way to put two and two together. But in this case, I was just kind of like, seriously don't understand what this game wants from me right now and the community and i would have to just go look it up and we'd be like how the fuck would i ever know that and it's so funny to think that like early enough on like that was just how games were designed and we somehow figured it out like i mean that's definitely (laughs) how i feel about like legend of zelda ocarina of time trying to get into jabu jabu and Mm, having like to put a fish in front of him like how would i know that I can use the bottle to catch a fish, let alone that I should be doing that and putting it in front of him. Like, how was I supposed to put that together? And I'm still salty about it to this day. <laughs> well, and I feel like video games parallel life in that way. You know, that's like life imitates art and vice versa. And even the guy who was designing the Sonic games talked about how like, it's like life, you know, you kind of just have to figure it out. Um, but yeah, it definitely, you can approach these like nebulous situations where it's like, okay, just like try everything and then make maybe one of the cupcakes you throw at the ceiling will stick. (laughs) That is a very specific example. (laughs) I have a lot of free time with cupcakes. You shouldn't shouldn't be doing that to cupcakes, first and foremost. I'm the cupcake advocate. You don't need to be doing that. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend. (laughs) Well, you were mentioning the creation of Sonic, and I I really find that fascinating about the fact that it was like a direct response to Mario, that it was supposed to launch the console. But then I also look at it and what they were doing with the, you know, Genesis does what Nintendo don't. You don't know what you've started. The console wars will continue yeah. for all time, and <laughs> we will have Xbox fanboys screaming, <laughs> screaming God. at PS5 fanboys and back and forth. Like, not to say that one is worse than the others. Everyone, everyone is terrible. Yeah. Oh my God. You had no idea what you were creating. That's so like, true. 
Yeah, again, the echoes of things that will still continue to this day. I mean, I know it's a young industry, but it's also an old industry, like, on a personal level. So. Just the fact that he drew this yeah. proverbial line in the in the video game industry's sand. Yeah. You're yeah, a Nintendo person, or you're a Sega person, or... or and or, Sega's you know, not even in it like that. Now choose. Yeah. But why not both? It's shocking how easily we all fell for it. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Good marketing. Because it was the marketing that told us that it was a versus match, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. And we were just like, oh, okay we have to choose Mm -hmm. and it's like we never had to choose like it was not in our best interest to choose i remember the first time somebody told me they owned a super nintendo and a genesis and i was like who is this wizard who casts aside the rules of man like (laughs) i would look at that and just think who's this rich bitch like who can fucking afford it Uh, I feel like you know, as a queer person, I've I never really have chosen. I feel Are like you I you're have channeling some pure bisexual energy there. Oh, heavily, yeah, oh. totally, just right into my. <laughs> uh, I was really, really, really sad when um the Dreamcast died, and I was like, oh man, I guess it's over for Sega. Dreamcast will forever be my favorite retro system. Me too. Yeah, you're not alone in that. It was such a great concept. It's so good. They had such great ideas. It was the first system that I ever bought exclusively by myself with my own money and it had the weirdest goddamn library of games that i'd ever seen in my fucking life yes i could play more or less the same games on a playstation or a nintendo but dreamcast Ooh. had shit that you had never heard of before yes like they were doing like space channel 5 and d2 yes and oh all of gosh, this yes. weird off beat shit and i was like yeah, I'm here for all of this. Like- <laughs> they had this zombie game that once you save the file of your character, it would turn your character into a Tamagotchi on what? the memory card. What? And then you could take care of the character on the memory card. And oh, it would yeah. progress your character on the Dreamcast console. And I was like, this is groundbreaking. Yeah. I was like, I love Tamagotchis. And it was, it was, I don't know. Their memory cards were super different mm-hmm. yeah their their memory cards were incredible i remember loading up chows in sonic adventure specifically yes, to yes, have them yes. as tamagotchis to take to school yes. with me 100 yes. percent, absolutely that's Ugh, fascinating ahead of the time like geez well it's interesting to see how much of like an impact sega had on the industry and now unfortunately is not a major player like they still develop games and things like that but they don't have the same kind of influence that they once did no. they're not having competitions at alcatraz anymore that's for sure yeah. i mean they inspired the switch so yeah let's <laughs> let's not talk about the game gear though <laughs> no let's, i loved the game gear let's talk about the game gear let's I talk love, about the game gear i love the game gear i wish they would have gone more into the game gear i love the game gear that thing was a battery sucking monster but it was really good oh my god, oh god. No, it was, right. was it like was it like eight or six six or eight batteries yeah and it, they would give you like a half an hour of gameplay <laughs> yeah, god exactly. we had a tv tuner that we smashed into that bitch and we would watch cartoons in the morning on the on your game gear, gear? Mm-hmm. me and my brother oh that's, that's so cool cute. video games was a big part of my childhood and my bonding with my brothers and sisters and that's probably why we love each other so much because we just always play video games together they're not really into video games anymore but i am yeah but uh, it's all good. <laughs> I think you have to be at that, that age, right? Where it just kind of like strikes you in the right way. And you're like, yeah, this is like kind of something that I want as part of my identity and like something that I want to do just because of how much yeah. value you get out of the experience. You know, 100%. I mean, I've attributed it to being a gender thing because I have sisters, but um, I feel like I, you and I are going to walk away from this and like call our, our definitely and be like, hey, yeah. how's it going? We have, I mean, we have a group yeah. chat. They, I talk to them all the time. That's, Oh, I love that great. so much. <laughs> I like how aspirational the series is, how it looks towards the best qualities and everything, but also 
it kind of ignores some things by having to do that. And Mike, you were mentioning how gendered it was and the fact that video games used to be considered toys, right? Mm -hmm. And when they were trying to pitch them as toys, all toys had to be gendered. Everything has to be pink or blue because fuck this society. So they chose boys and that's how it's just stuck for so long by a stupid marketing decision. Again, the the echoes of what has happened. And um, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but watching it, I was so thrilled to see the highlighting of marginalized voices. But at the exact same time, I kind of wish they got into why those voices were marginalized in the first place. Why is it that Black and trans and queer voices are not welcome in these spaces? Why is it that we need to have a documentary focusing on them as something special and unique? Because they're not usually welcome. I I don't know. Like, did you guys sort of feel that while you were watching it? Like, you wanted to see kind of the dark and ugly side as well? I think they were trying to keep it light. Because if they'd gone into it, there's a lot of misogyny and a lot of homophobia that uh, comes with that subject. And I feel like they were trying to keep it light in the documentary. Mm -hmm. I would have liked to see that a lot more, though, too. Get a whole series of just that. (laughs) <laughs> I definitely thought a lot about the uglier side of events while I was watching, but I was I was honestly kind of glad they didn't get into it because it was refreshing to just revel in the victories for once. Yeah, I think it's just a presupposition that those difficulties, Travis, that you outlined exist. And I think that what they were trying to go for was create this very like light, fun homage for the video game industry and 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 simultaneously for highlighting marginalized voices. The video game homage for us, for uh, us as in the whole spectrum that is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that is fair. That's very true. Well, I mean, we also got to see things like Gayblade, which was really oh cool. My God, oh my so God. I'm so glad yeah. you brought that up. It was the one thing in my notes here that I was like, oh, we haven't talked about it yet. It's Rainbow Road. We got to talk about Gayblade. <laughs> got- circling back to the, the idea of leveraging your creative potential. The artist made this game as a response to what was happening at that time around him. And I think that it ended up being just this like amazing, fun social artifact of like political turmoil, but that was just really hilarious. And it, <laughs> did he insinuate that he did find a copy or that, that there's still kind of you can play it you can play it they found it shortly after the documentary was finished and it's now up on the lgbtq game archive you can actually play it amazing have you checked it out ashley is it fun yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's a goddamn delight (laughs) (laughs) it's real tough to play it hasn't aged well but oh my god My kingdom for a gay blade remake. Oh man, that would be 2021. Yeah, I- I'm I'm hoping. Hey, the indie game scene is popping off. So, well, it's actually funny because this wasn't the first game with queer themes in it. But I do want to bring light to one other one that is also on the Internet Video Archive. The same one it is also understood to be the first one with queer themes. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what's being said. Uh, it was called Caper in the Castro. It's described as a single-player point-and-click game. The player takes on the role of Tracker McDyke, a lesbian private detective who must find her kidnapped friend and drag queen Tessie LaFemme, which is just great. These Mm -hmm. names. (laughs) Right? What I found also super fascinating was that after it became super popular within the queer community and the BBS sites where it would be spread around, they decided that it was almost commercially viable enough. I mean, the gameplay was apparently interesting enough for everyone, but in order to actually sell it worldwide... The creator had to straight wash all of the gay themes in it and change all of the gay and trans references. It's just kind of funny to see how, like, we've always been here. We've always been here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's it's nice. It was really cool to see that. Totally. 
the I wanted to talk about the the moral panic that occurred in the wake of the because I feel like night trap. Yeah, it's the same wave of people that instigate these like shame crusades. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my god, this is like a society destroying thing. It's really, I guess, frustrating for me. I, I can't even describe the emotion that is associated with this. It makes me want to shake my head and just be like why no like it's just not for you it's like then if you don't want to play <laughs> like don't play it like you don't have to Ugh, yeah i don't know it's I, a lot of people who don't understand it and haven't taken the time to understand it but they want to shame it because they pick like the most like gruesome parts of the game to show yeah, in the herring right. it's not that bad i mean who's gonna have like a extendo arm that like grabs <laughs> around people's necks and sucks the blood mm-hmm. out of them but doesn't show it and that was part of the notes that they received too is like you have to make violence that's not reproducible which i i do understand i do exactly. understand that bit and i think that that's fine in it but the note definitely didn't make the game like so absurd and i think there's also something to be said for taking something out of context when of it course. changes the perspective of the game because you're not you're not a player mm-hmm. you've extrapolated and i just feel like it's not justice by any means you know yeah. i mean m- my concern is complicated um, <laughs> so i mean you look at the history of this moral panic around video games and how they're affecting people and it did start with you know the stuff that they mentioned in the documentary and, and unfortunately it goes on so much further than that but it's this idea of video games cause violence which just no they don't first off no they don't there are countless no. studies proving that they don't but you go even beyond that and the problem that it's now caused with the industry is that people spent so long saying video games don't turn us into killers that the base argument turned into video games can't affect us, which is not true. It's media. Media does affect us and how we view the world. And there is now this pendulum swing the other way where now critics like us who are trying to say that, hey, maybe these spaces aren't as welcoming to other marginalized communities because of the way that they're reinforcing stereotypes or the way that they're shaping narratives. People say, no, that's not possible because video games don't affect us. And (laughs) this moral panic has now made it so much harder to improve the Mm -hmm. industry because people think that you know, well, they can't affect us. That's what we've said all this time. And if we start saying that they can, then all these moral panic people were right this whole time. I which, see, yeah. No, they weren't. Mm-hmm. So mm. I, I really hate what it's done. Like, you know, you look at Ubisoft saying things like, well, our games aren't political. But did you guys see the trailer for Elite Squad that came out two weeks ago? No, no I haven't seen it. <laughs> no, what? Why? Okay, so I, I'm going to guess from Ashley's laugh that she heard it. <laughs> or she's seen it. <laughs> Uh, so basically they have this game that is uh, the greatest hits of all of their Tom Clancy games, which in themselves are extremely (laughs) political, but the trailer that they released had iconography that is shared with the Black Lives Matter movement, but the imagery is being attributed to the game's fictional terrorist organization. Nice. Yeah. That's not divisive at all. That's not cool. No, the the framing of it is is so bad. Basically, they say that this uh, cabal of terrorists is using the civil rights movement to destabilize governments and to create chaos and anarchy and take over the world and things like... Yeah, exactly. Uh, And the only thing that can stop them is an extrajudicial uh, extrajudicial oh, I can't say that word <laughs> one more time you judicial. got this extrajudicial force of killers uh, who can just go around eliminating and assassinating people without due process and yeah apparently that's what the world needs right now that's what everyone's crying for that's trash who greenlighted that yeah uh, the, the worst part was the only thing that they took from this entire criticism of that was you're right 
we're not political, so we're going to take out the black power fist and leave everything else in because that's not political. It's just that iconography. And it's like, no, it goes so much deeper than that, guys. Like, What's wrong with triple A's? Well, it's, yeah. it's so funny, too, because there seems to be this giant disconnect within Ubisoft of what their games mean because they do tend to have this company-wide stance of like, yes, you are a government agent. Yes, you are above the law. Yes, you are killing America's enemies, which are, you know, not at all political themes. Your dog agrees. (laughs) (laughs) But then Ubisoft Toronto is developing Watch Dogs Legion, and that team hasn't been shy at all about how the dystopic surveillance state that the game is set in in London is based on what they feel the logical conclusion of Brexit is Mm -hmm. and how it's all fueled by current political climates. And so it's so bizarre to see like uh, a lot of people tend to think of Ubisoft as like an entity, but it's an entity made up of a bunch of studios and each one has their own kind of like hot take on what they're doing. And Toronto has just kind of been like, yeah, we're political. How could we make this game and not be? And it's so weird to see when the company line seems to be like, oh, no, no, this is just a video game. It's not a reflection of anything in society. Like, mm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to look at it. And it's a shame that, you know, Ubisoft is not the only problem in the industry. It's just symptomatic of it. And it's just this consistent idea of video games can't affect us. Oh, yeah, they're, they're not a unique issue at all. No, not even a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. So it's... I mean, that's why this podcast exists, so that we can bring up these issues and then we can talk about, you know, the queer perspective and how video games do affect us, both good and bad. And, you know, that's... So I'm so thankful I have you guys. Thank you for, for coming and joining us. Thank you for coming to talk yeah, about this. Yeah, absolutely. High Score has given us a great premise to like launch all these discussions off of. So, yeah. yeah. So if you guys haven't seen it, please go watch it. Um, I know we usually cover video games, but we were really passionate about this. So we were really glad to get to talk about it. Um, it, you know, is everything that we want to do with Rainbow Road. So we're so thrilled that it exists. Um I who knows what uh, the future holds for us. We will probably be taking a few weeks off because Mike and I are heading back to work and the world is changing and so are our schedules. Um, I mean, there's a lot of games that I want to cover. Like, I really want to do Last of Us 2. I really want to do Life is Strange 2. And decide on a name for the Nerd Herd or the Roadheads or what was the one we landed on? The Rain Bros. <laughs> the Rain Bros. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what we have time for, what we can do. Um, if you guys are interested in also hearing us blabber on more, um, we've been invited to write articles for Level Story, which is a gaming magazine. Um, Matt and I have articles coming out for Last of Us. Uh, Mike will be joining us for, for future articles as well. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Please check it out. Mm-hmm. It's a great magazine. Yeah. And thanks uh, thanks to our guests. Thanks to Ashley for joining us today. Thank you, Ike, who's jo- joining us from Georgia. Do you want to plug yourself? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and on Twitch at Ashley Versus, V-E-R-S-U-S. That's that's where I'm at. You can find me. Uh, it's going to be Ike X Pastel for Twitch, Instagram, Twitter, everything pretty much. I cornered the market for that one. <laughs> nice. I'm, awesome. I'm proud of it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us, and we will see you next time, whenever that is. This has been Rainbow Road. If you liked this episode, follow us on Twitter at Rainbow Road Pod, or get in touch with us for future episodes at Podcast at gmail.com. And a big thank you to all of our guests today and our producer, Matt Kennar. Thanks for listening to Rainbow Road.